0: the newsroom to you live
1: hi everyone and welcome to washington post live i'm mariana sotomayor and i'm a congressional reporter at the washington post i am very excited to talk to congresswoman kat Kamick. maybe the top reason is we come from the same state of florida <laughs> congresswoman thank you so much for joining us
0: today hey good morning to you mariana it's great to be with you guys and go gator since you're a floridian
1: <laughs> yep, yep. I know there's a lot of allegiances to the Gator community. Um, I want to let our viewers know before we get started that you can actually ask the Congresswoman a question. Just make sure to tweet at Post Live, and we'll try to incorporate some of those questions in our conversation. Uh, Congressman, there's so much that I wanna talk to you about, so much to even look forward to before these November midterm elections, a lot of politics happening, Uh, but I wanna talk to you about the news of the day. We all more or less woke up to the news about the state of the economy. Um, It is the second quarter in which we have seen the economy shrink that has traditionally been an indicator that we are headed into a recession course the Biden administration saying well our job numbers here in the country are still pretty strong so we're not necessarily there they don't want to declare a recession two part question for you one what is your reaction to what you're seeing and you know it's possible that republicans take back the house majority after the midterm election what are you all discussing about how you, what legislation or you know how you would like to strengthen the economy
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, I think this morning's news about meeting the criteria of a quote unquote technical recession wasn't really a surprise for anybody, uh, Republican or Democrat. And, you know, we get into this game of, you know, definitions and is this technically a recession? I can tell you, having uh, been back home and talking to constituents it has been a recessionary type environment for a while. When I have seniors that are making the decision between gas or groceries, they're facing increased pressure on a fixed income uh, to make rent. These are real life issues that everyone back home and really across America, we've all been feeling the squeeze. And you needn't go to the the gas station and pay over $5 a gallon of gas to recognize that things aren't going great right now in America in terms of the economy. I talk to employers all the time and they say, listen, you know, we thought that things were going to be picking back up. We thought that we would be able to get some folks back in to apply and get folks to work. The incentive packages that employers have been putting together to try to entice people to get back to work have been through the charts, but yet the end result is still the same in that employers are having a hard time finding help. Uh, Our our folks on fixed incomes are really getting squeezed the hardest. Those uh, lower and middle class Americans that um, are working class families, they're feeling the squeeze. You know, this is back to school time. I've got moms calling me saying It's over $600 per child in just back to school supplies. I don't think anyone is shocked by this news. Um, So it's pretty clear that we've got a lot of work to do here at home and that the policies that the Biden administration is pushing forward just aren't working, they're missing the mark. And they have um, both when it comes to the actual numbers, but also in practice too. So you know, I think that when Republicans take back the House and Republicans will take back the House, and I believe the Senate as well, We're going to put forward an America First agenda that is rooted in the basics, getting government out of the way. The regulatory environment has really strangled enterprise and commerce across this country through a variety of different industries. We're going to help get people back to work by reducing that burden of everyday essentials on them from school supplies, you know, like I said, um, to the basics like gas and groceries. The inputs on our food supply right now, be it fuel costs, be it fertilizer, And of course, all the regulatory environment, it's really increasing the cost of food. So we're going to focus on lowering gas prices, getting people back to work, and really unleashing the economic opportunity that we have here in this country. And I think that there's no better country in the world that can produce energy. And we are an energy economy. We can produce it better, cleaner, and more efficiently than anywhere else in the world. So we're going to empower our domestic production industry to get back to work. To really restart that engine, and that's going to be the first step.
1: I want to talk to you a little bit more later on about, you know, what you're hearing down in a what is considered traditionally a battleground state. Um, but I do want to talk about the biggest news of the day so far in terms of this summer, this 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 year, which is the Supreme Court decision in rolling yeah. back Roe versus Wade, and just the uncertainty that we're seeing right now as to how states will address abortion access. Um, you have a very personal story. I know you have yeah. told it before, um, but you know I wanna start off this conversation by letting our viewers know who may not have
0: heard it. What, how do you come to this issue? What is your own personal story? Well, you know, I feel a lot of the times like I have a um, a very important role in this conversation for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I have a very personal story, but two, I also represent, I believe, the generation that is impacted most by this issue right now, as the youngest Republican woman in Congress today. And when I talk to folks about this, regardless of where you find yourself on the political spectrum, I always start with, um, I know how personal this is, and I look at my own story in that the fact that my mom she was urged to abort me um, for health reasons when she was in her late 20s she was pregnant with my sister and actually suffered a stroke days before she was set to deliver and it took her about a year and a half to just relearn the basic motor functions walking talking and to this day there's still residual effects of the stroke but it was then that the doctors told her that she would never be able to have children again safely. And so you can imagine um, as a young woman, the heartbreak that, you know, that that kind of news um, Puts on you. So fast forward several years, and she finds herself pregnant with me. And circumstances aren't exactly ideal uh, when she finds herself pregnant with me. Being alone, a single mom raising a daughter, and uh, she was running a small family business at the time. Not a lot of support, and certainly no resources really to 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 have a lot of options. But it was the doctors that started the pressure campaign of. You know you're not going to survive this and certainly your child won't survive this you know do you really want to put yourself in 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 that position and certainly when my grandparents found out uh, they also um, had grave concerns as any parent would about the safety of their child and so they also urged you know hey listen maybe maybe this is a good idea to abort this child but against all odds my mother had a a, an incredible um, moment of bravery And she defied doctor's orders and was able to carry a a baby girl, healthy baby girl, eight pounds, six ounces all the way to full term and delivered uh, with no issues against all, all odds. And so today I'm here because, you know, my mom back in the late 80s, she didn't have all the resources that are here today. And I know how personal and how absolutely terrifying these situations can be, and that's why I think it's so important that we really empower and support the over 2,700 pro-life pregnancy centers around the country that are really designed to give women uh, in these positions, in these situations, the support they need, rather than just the the one-sided narrative of it's time to abort. That is not a solution, and we need to move away from this narrative that abortion is health care. It's not. And so I think we need to empower women to really give them all options and all information that's on the table, and that's why I'm so excited about what Dobbs v. Jackson did. It really took this issue and returned it to the states where we've known it should have been rested all along. But it also is empowering women and the pro-life community and the advocates who are around the country who have worked tirelessly for gosh, years, decades, uh, they have really now amplified their voices because I, as a small government conservative, believe that government is best when it is local, it is small, and it is responsive. And I think that voices are going to be amplified at the state level more so than they ever could be at the federal. And it was well overdue that Dobbs v. Jackson returned this issue back to the states where it's always belonged.
1: You mentioned that abortion isn't health care. Um, you are actually the co-chair of the Pro-Life Caucus on Capitol Hill. And you know you are part of a class of that I think has seen the largest group of Republican women. It is likely, if you all take back the House, you will have probably the largest ranks ever of Republican women in the House. Uh, and a lot of these questions will come up, and it could be something that you all will address. You have essentially will likely have the power to really shape legislation when it comes to women's health. I've talked to a number of your colleagues on this, what they see as you know, protecting, um, uh, protecting access to pro-life measures, but also things that could help empower women, just like you were saying. Could you tell us a little bit about either proposals you have or what those conversations are like with your colleagues about what you all can do on women's health?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's such an an honor to really serve as the co-chair for the pro-life caucus. I mean, it is. It's really, again, like I said, this is about empowering women. It's about empowering um, uh, this next generation of pro-life advocates. For so long, we had said, "I'm going to be part of the pro-life post Roe generation," and I, I think it it kind of snuck up on us in a way that we all were just uh, blown away by in such in such an amazing way. And when I talk about this particular issue um, amongst my peers, but also certainly amongst my my age demographic, I also say, listen, this is not just a win for the sanctity of life, but this was a win for the sanctity of our constitution. And I think we're seeing a lot of women who are engaging in the conservative movement, in the pro-life space, who are saying, you know... I'm a little curious about how federal government approaches this issue, the hypocrisy that exists. You know, how is it that NASA can uh, regard bacteria on Mars as life, but we don't recognize a heartbeat in the womb as life? I think that's a little curious. I also question when the DOJ has language that says that a pregnant woman who is murdered is classified as a double homicide, but it's not if the woman takes the child's life. There's... A litany of in in in, uh, indiscrep in. discrepancies that we have on this issue that need to be worked out. But I think there's also a foundational issue. You know, we are the nation of equal opportunity, not equal outcome. We are rooted in the idea and the tenets of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And how can you uphold those ideals if we don't begin with life? And so one of the bills that we have been really um, adamant about, there's actually the very first discharge petition of the 117th Congress uh, with every single Republican uh, who has signed on to it. It is uh, Representative Wagner's bill. She uh, champions the uh, Abortion Survivor Protection Act. And I was really proud to work with her and Representative Whip Scalise on this to bring this discharge petition, which says simply that if a child survives an abortion attempt, the doctor has to administer life-saving care but more than that, it has to be reported because this issue actually is, is common and it is grossly underreported. The data uh, that we do have shows that this is a a frequent issue that people around the country come in, come into contact with. And so just from, from the standpoint of if a child survives, it is at that point outside of the womb fighting for life. As a healthcare professional, that person needs to deliver healthcare, life-saving healthcare um, to that, that child. And so I think that's a basic, a basic place where we start in we're gonna fight for life um, in, in that moment. And we're going to start actually collecting the necessary data to really understand this issue um, from all levels. But, you know, you also see things, of course, where uh, Representative Kay Granger, who will be the chair for uh, appropriations, she's fighting at every turn to make sure that the Hyde uh, Hyde Amendment protections are included so that no taxpayer dollars go to financing abortion, regardless of how you feel about it. I think that there is absolutely no place for taxpayer-funded abortions to be in our nation. And when you look at say planned parenthood for example with nearly 600 facilities around the country 96% of their pregnancy care is not prenatal it's not uh anything but abortions 96% of their pregnancy centered quote unquote healthcare and i'm using Anna, air quotes on that um it's 96% of that is abortion so I think we have a really good shot right now to take the pro-life movement, not just on the abortion issue, but moving forward, You know, empowering working moms, empowering working families, talking about ways we can make adoption more affordable and accessible, streamlining some of these systems that we know have some kinks uh, that need to be worked out, talking about protections for the special needs community. Uh, There's been a situation in my district where we have found that there was discriminatory practices in place to deny organ transplants to children um, that were born with special needs. That's the most horrific thing you can possibly think of to tell a parent, well, your child has Down syndrome and therefore is not eligible for this transplant. Uh, That to me is something that needs to change. So we're going to continue to fight uh, for pro-life. And it's not just in the womb, but it's all the way through. So I wanted to actually ask you a question we are getting from one of our viewers,
1: uh, Kenneth Woodward. He is from Illinois and is asking, is the GOP conference willing to back abortion restrictions that allow exceptions of rape, incest and immediate physical harm to the mother? Where are you guys on that?
0: You know, and I think that's the wonderful thing about the Republican Party is that we all, like I said, come at it from our own different personal experiences. And the wonderful thing about Dobbs v. Jackson is that it returned this issue to the states. So now the citizens of each state have the ability to really champion what they feel is going to work best for their state. And I know in in some areas, you know, you have a, a heartbeat bill um, in places like California. It's abortion on demand up until the day before delivery delivery. delivery, late-term abortions, uh, which I personally find absolutely horrific. I think that is where the state legislatures and the governors and the people of those respective states are going to be truly empowered. But as a pro-life advocate, I would say that it is our job to really highlight and support the entire uh, pro-life community and the, uh, the systems and the services that they provide. This isn't like 30 years ago when we were really struggling to provide um, pro-life alternatives. This is where we now, like I said, have 2,700 pro-life pregnancy centers around the country that are willing to stand with women in crisis in need. And so I think there's going to be some pretty robust debates about the issues of rape and incest, uh, particularly when it's reported. And certainly I know that these are difficult conversations, but they're conversations that we need to be having. And certainly across this country in the next few years, we're going to be hearing them in state capitals.
1: You mentioned just the debates that are coming up, likely will come up. House Democrats are at some points forcing you all to try and have some debates. I know last week was an example of that. Um, The last two weeks, actually, you voted against allowing women or protecting women from seeking an abortion out of state. Um, I wanted to ask you about that, but I know you also voted against contraception. That's something else that Democrats try to put on the floor, but you did vote in support for Congresswoman Ashley Hinson, your colleague, a uh, Republican from mm-hmm. Iowa, her own proposal on contraception, which would essentially allow any woman over the age of 18 to access FDA approved birth control pills over, or pills over the counter, um, which would be pretty revolutionary. Democrats voted against that. It looks like there could be places for compromise. I know that, you know, there's a lot of politicking when it comes to voting on things. But on that issue, on those issues, do you think that you could actually find a place to define legislation for protections? Because that could be something that may come up if you all are in the majority.
0: You know, and I think that's a wonderful opportunity for us to work in a bipartisan manner on this. Um, As you said, you know, I supported Representative Hinson's bill um, to provide contraceptives to people that are 18 and over. And and the thing that I continually push back on is that Republicans are not against contraception. That's not it at all. What we are against is the notion that a total free-for-all using non-FDA-approved measures, uh, that that is somehow going to solve a problem. No, that's absolutely not it. And the notion that there was going to somehow be checkpoints across interstate lines um, for women who were traveling across states to you know, seek abortions, that somehow there was going to be um, some sort of effort to police this um, or go after women, that couldn't be further from the truth. And it was actually pretty infuriating to hear that argument be put on the House floor and leveraged against us. I think that the pro-life movement is a pro-woman movement. We, we are extraordinarily um, supportive of women at all stages. And to suggest that somehow that states were going to restrict interstate travel um, and punish women for, for traveling to, to get an abortion— was absolutely ludicrous. And I think most people across the country saw it for what it was. I mean, it was it was political through and through. And as you as you said, you know, there was a move for the contraception bills to be put forward. Yet de- Democrats voted against uh, Representative Ashley Hinson's bill. And I talked to them and they said, well, you know, we ha- we actually are we're in support of this, but we just can't. The politics are clouding good policy. And I think that that's what we need to get back to is good, sound policy that is all about empowering people to make the best decisions for themselves. And I think offering uh, contraception that is not FDA approved, uh, that is terribly uh, risky. And so I think if we get the politics out of the way. Take a step back and really have a conversation, as Americans—not Republicans versus Democrats—but as Americans, and particularly as women. You know, I serve in the Women's Caucus as the vice chair, um, and and we have very incredible contributions to, to each other's ideas. I think that this is a place that we can actually work together, but we've got to get out of this outrage politics culture that we're living in, where one person says something crazy and the next person has to one-up them. It's not productive, it's not helpful. And I think the American people at the end of the, at the, end of the day, they deserve better.
1: When you're back home, you mentioned, you know, you're hearing things that are related to the economy. Um, I've heard that, too, traveling to different parts of the country. <laughs> is abortion coming up at all? What are the issues? You know, beyond inflation, everyone, yeah. it doesn't matter background or, or where you live in the
0: country, is is tackling that. What else are you hearing from people? Oh, my goodness. When I'm back home, I haven't heard a soul uh, mention abortion or any of the social issues really at all, people are really scared about the economics. They're very scared when it comes to having enough money to get through the end of the month, um, especially for our working class folks. I've got moms that are very concerned about the fact that baby formula is not on the shelves and they're in you know Facebook groups to try to help each other source baby formula when they have specialty needs or kids that have specialty needs or allergies. They're really concerned, and like I said, young women, they're concerned about feminine products being in short supply. I can't tell you how many of my friends have texted me saying, I have been to three stores and I cannot find tampons anywhere. It's almost like the, the Biden administration is waging a war on young women around this country because it's Baby formula, it's menstrual products, it's it's all these things that are you know essentials for us, and and we aren't able to get them, and that's due to a litany of factors, um, but it's what's really top of mind because if you were to drive around my district, for example, you're gonna see that gas is extraordinarily vol- volatile; it will go from nearly five dollars a gallon one day to um 460 the next you're gonna see uh parents trying to make ends meet you're gonna see a lot of my seniors who are making tough decisions about the essentials and prescription medication and how am i going to pay rent that continues to skyrocket where you know florida is now becoming um a very desirable place to live you know we we have a ton of folks moving to our state, as evidenced by the fact that we picked up a congressional seat in this latest uh, census. And these are things that are putting pressures on everyday Americans, whereas politics used to be a thing of, oh, you know, it's out there, politicians, politics, whatever. Now they're paying attention because gas groceries, um, crime. Fentanyl has been absolutely eating up congressional districts across the country, regardless if you're Republican or Democrat. A great example is in Marion County in my backyard. We've had another brick of fentanyl found with a pill press. And this is the number one killer of young adults between the ages of 18 and 45. Opioids are absolutely and fentanyl. It's killing our communities. It's busting up families and crime, of course. These are the issues that folks back home are talking about and they're concerned about. And that's what Republicans are focused on.
1: So we only have a couple minutes left, if you can believe it. Um, I do want to ask you two quick things. (laughs) I know it always goes by fast. It always shocks me. Um, But you mentioned, you know, social issues aren't necessarily something that are coming up when you're talking to voters. Um, You all took a vote last week on a social issue that many do consider settled law. That was, of course, marriage equality, allowing people of same sex marriage to get married, as well as um, protecting interracial marriages. You were one of the 47 Republicans who voted in support of it. Why did you feel it was necessary to to do that?
0: Well, as a constitutional conservative, I felt that it's really quite simple for me. Yes, it is settled law. And if we are going to really uphold the Fifth Amendment and the 14th Amendment and guarantee equal protections under the law, we need to make sure that we're doing that across the board. I've said often that the Constitution, it's not a la carte. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to uphold from one day to the next. And as someone who is fiercely protective of my oath and the Constitution, I felt that it was really important that I take a stand and say, yes, 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law. And I think it's really important that we mention that it wasn't redefining the biblical definition of marriage. Marriage has been co-opted as a term by the government for really a contract between two consenting adults. And I don't think that anybody is in disagreement. They want marriage out out of government as much as I do. But at the end of the day, I know that this is the right vote because it is the constitutional vote. And we need to protect equal rights for every single American, regardless of what their definition of pursuit of happiness is.
1: And I know, you know, looking ahead further down the road, um, you have former President Donald Trump's endorsement. I'm curious to know, you know, what you think of his own role in the midterms has been and, and if he should maybe run for president again in 2024.
0: You know, it's it has been so remarkable to see the effect and the influence that President Donald Trump has had on conservative politics, but um, American politics, heck, I would even say global politics. You see so many um, leaders around the world who have really kind of emulated a lot of his, his style and his strategies and approaches to issues. And I, for one, am grateful of his service and what he has done in really putting Americans first and really pushing back against the notion that government knows best because government doesn't. And I think that empowering people is always a good idea. And that's what he did was he was empowering people to make the best decisions for themselves, their families, and their business and getting government out of the way, really dismantling so many of these big government bureaucracies that are unelected and really not accountable for so many of the decisions that impact our life. So I think in terms of the midterm, He has been extraordinarily successful in supporting conservative candidates around the country. And I think we're going to continue to see that track record of success. I think the midterms are going to be about taking back the House, taking back the Senate, restoring some balance in Washington. And I can't wait to see what comes next.
1: I wanted to ask you about, you know, <laughs> kind of talked about the role of women here on Capitol Hill. Um, you all potentially may take back the majority. It's something that I like to see, too. And in, in the press corps, we're seeing a lot more diversity there as well. You know, you are a freshman. You've only been here for, for your first two years. Um, if you can tell me, you know, what has it been like? Has there ever been a time where you as a woman, you know, have had to stand up, or to 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 men. Have you tried to change any ideas of of what has typically been a very male dominated Capitol Hill? And how are you fostering or mentoring women who are just starting off their career on Capitol Hill?
0: Wow, Ooh, there's a lot there. Um... <laughs> You know, as somebody who was raised by a single mom, a working mom who was in a male dominated industry, commercial sandblasting, you know, you kind of grow up uh, just knowing how to be tough and how to deal with um, some of the commentary and some of the, you know, unfair approaches that get taken to women in a traditionally male dominated uh, space you know when folks tell me oh hey little darling i give it right back to them because i know that most of the time and i would say actually 99% of the time there's no malice in in how people approach me it's really just how people approach their life in general, you know. And so I, I take it in stride. And and the folks know, especially the fellas, they know that I'm going to give them just as much of a hard time back. And um, one of the things that I did right out the gate was I joined the congressional baseball team. And so I'm right out there at second base, ribbing my fellow uh, members and having a good time, you know, just letting them know that we, we agree on so much. And there's such a value add to having women at the table, such a different perspective that really hasn't been up here in, in Washington, D.C. But one of the things that I'm continually pushing back on is the notion that I am somehow qualified because I check a box. And I think that most women, they're proving their worth, they're proving their talent. They're proving that they deserve a seat at the table, not because they're a woman, not because they're young, but because they are the best damn person for the job. And that's what I love about this class. We just have a class of badass women who come from every walk of life, every industry. Uh, And to me, that is so exciting because we're gonna continue to build on that. We're gonna have women who have served in battle. We have veterans, we have business owners who have dominated uh, industry. We have working moms uh, that are getting elected and they're going to have a seat at the table and they'll be able to really influence policy in a way that is reflective of the America that we have today. And that is going to be, I think, one of the greatest contributions to the 118th Congress and really set the stage for decades of pro-American, pro-woman policy in America.
1: Well, Congresswoman, we've touched on a number of different topics, and I still have (laughs) about a zillion more questions, but I will save them for (laughs) the hallways of the House. Thank you so much for joining us
0: today. Hey, thank you so much. And of course, go Gators. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.